And I look around. I'm looking to see if anybody. I mean, because I'm by myself at this point, and I don't know if there's anybody else that has that's around with with a gun. And so by the time I clear everything out and got people moved out of the way, and he's laying there, and he's pretty much just about dead. And I turn around. There's another guy who's basically running away. He's gone. And I look down. There's this eyeball laying on the porch. Like, something you are listening to serial spirits the podcast hola como estas Welcome back to another episode of Serial Spirits, the podcast. It is me, your host, Brendan Shea. Tonight, we're going a little different. We're going to hear some stories from a great friend of mine. Let me give you a little background. About two and a half years ago, uh, we started down a road looking into Indrid Cold. And you heard from this guy on our series, I Am Cold, The Story of Indrid. It's Chris DeMarais. He was our uh, associate producer, and he did a lot of the research for us, looking into a lot of the technology companies and the UFO sightings in those areas. Well, Chris is a retired police officer from New York City, and we're going to talk to him about some of the craziest stories and experiences he had while being a cop in New York City. So guys, buckle in, because these stories are wild. You know, I worked, I worked, the department I worked for, um, was, you know, it, it's, it was next to Yonkers. It was next to, to the city and it's in, you know, right outside of the city. So and it, we, we, when I got on in the in the mid eighties, it was like, we had the burgeoning crack and, and problem. What happened was, uh, I, I think Dinkins was mayor at the time and New York city, was they were on the verge of bankruptcy, so they they had a lot, they were spending a lot of money on social welfare programs, and they were they wanted to move people out that were on Section Eight housing and all this. So what they did it was they found communities up the line that had empty hotels and motels, uh, and they bargained with the county, Westchester County, and they bargained with other communities, and the the owners of these hotels and motels were just you know they wanted to make a buck, you know they had. They, they had no character, these people. So they ha- wound up housing these people in these hotels. So I think at one point, one out of every 10 people in a certain area where I worked were these people from New York City. You know what I mean? And they, it was just a lot of problems. So we had a lot of, when we started to get 
a lot of the drugs and everything in. Uh, we tried to do more interdictions because we got people from their shell, Mount Vernon, those cities were coming in, selling dope and then leaving and, and, and going back. And we, you know, we kind of knew what was going on. So, uh, so I stopped this one guy, he was a Jamaican dude and he was a pain in the ass, you know, like he, <laughs> he thought it was fun. Like he thought it was funny. Like he, he, I, I, I knew he was selling crack. I knew I, but I could, I could all. Oh, couldn't catch him all like at the right time. I pulled him over once and I, I turned his car upside down. He had a BMW and I found in the trunk of his car, I found all these 45 rounds all inside of his trunk. I, I couldn't find the gun. Uh, you know, he always had cash on him, but at that time, you, if you didn't find any, uh, you know, any, any drugs or any, anything else, uh, then what are you going to do? about the money you know what i mean they could say anything they wanted isn't that how it works though like if you get busted with drugs and a gun i mean that's like that's the felony right there well so well you can't have a gun on you either way if you have if you have drugs even certain prescription drugs of alcohol you can't have a weapon that's completely against the law whether or not you have a permit you know you just can't carry one because you're not allowed to having your possession of firearm if you're under the influence of drugs or alcohol. But these guys, what they would, so what they would do is they were smart enough to separate. So if you, if if you have a, get somebody with a certain quantity of drugs, Coke, heroin, whatever they have on them, and it's enough to consider it a sale. And then you find on them two or three, $4,000 worth of cash. Then you conclude that it's the the proceeds of a sale. Exactly right. So you get them for distribution or whatever, you know, and you seize the money and the drugs. And then, of course, if they have any weapons and you just seize those things. But he kept he I knew where he was going and I knew what he was doing. I just never could catch this guy, you know, that, that. and he he was he was a short, stocky Jamaican guy. And he thought it was he thought it was funny, like every once in a while I'd stop him and he'd laugh. He'd think it was funny, you know, legit stops, though, you know. They were legit stops. I, I wasn't going to make up a reason for stopping it. He didn't have to. The vehicle and traffic law books are just, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds of things people do wrong that you could stop them for. So time had gone by, and no, he never thought about this guy too much. About a year or so goes by, maybe a little bit more, and I was working uh, a midnight shift, and it was right before Christmas time. You know, a few days before Christmas. And I had just gotten on. It was like maybe one o'clock in the morning or so. And I, I get a call for shots fired. There was a, there was this little dead end road. At one point, it was a longer road. But when they had built the Cross Westchester Expressway in the 50s and 60s, they took this road and they split it in half. So the, the remaining, it was a neighborhood at one point, was just maybe like four or five houses. And it, on one side was this Cross Westchester Expressway and a big retaining wall and all that. And it was a one way you could just go up it, but you know, there was really, and, and there was a Wendy's that was on the other side of it. So I got called for shots fired and I go to this house and sure enough, I get, there was a cold, it was cold out and I jump out of the police car and there's a couple of people standing on this porch. The house is all lit up, you know, with lights. And there's this dude laying prone on the ground and he, the blood, uh, was like a purple so he where what he was doing was just bleeding out from uh from a vein you know wherever he got i didn't see it first where he got shot but 
he the blood was still steaming. That's how soon I got there after they called for the shots fired. And I look around. I'm looking to see if anybody. I mean, because I'm by myself at this point, and I don't know if there's anybody else that has that's around with with a gun. And so by the time I clear everything out and got people moved out of the way, and he's laying there, and he's pretty much just about dead. And I turn around. There's another guy who's basically running away. He's gone. And I look down. There's this eyeball laying on the porch, like looking up, <laughs> looking up at me. Like it's, a legit eyeball. Yeah, an eyeball. And so I go over to this guy who's laying down on the ground. It's just pretty much just bled to death. And, you know, so I'm, I'm asking people, who is he, who is he? Nobody's answering. And I, by that time, a lot of people had or already run away. Like, and probably more when I was there had run away. I just, there was nothing I could do about it. And so I took his wallet out of his pocket and I look at it and I said, son of a bitch. It was the guy, it was that Jamaican guy who I had stopped, you know, handfuls of times trying to get him for dealing wow. there. And yeah, it was him. And uh, his name was Ansel Barrett. And it was him. He was uh, laying there, laying there dead, you know. So ultimately what happened was he he was at this party. They were just a big party. And he was there probably selling and feeding everything out to people. And then there was some kind of an argument. Another group had showed up and... Uh, there was an argument about who was going to get in, who wasn't, you know, something to that effect. And this Ansel Barrett's friend who was inside another Jamaican guy had come out and confronted the other group. And he had, uh, I think he had a 380. And when he went to go shoot at them, Ansel Barrett moved in front of him and he shot him right through the base of the neck, like through the base of the skull. And it came out between wow. his eyes. Yeah, he, he didn't die from being shot. He died because he bled to death by exsanguination. He and he choked he choked on his own blood because he was when he was shot, the coroner said that it severed his spine. So he was just breathing in and at that point just breathing in his own blood and own fluids. And that's how that's actually how he died. And the guy who was shot, who got his eyeball blown out, he was proud. he you know he, he he was asked to, to 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 give statements at the hospital and all that. He was just being he lived. Yeah, he was just being really uncooperative. Yeah, and he kept people tried to talk to him, and he would take his eye patch off and squeeze his eye and make shit come out of his eyesight. It was uh. just really Yeah, it was really disgusting. And he was doing it on purpose. Like he was just and uh, yeah. So, um, but it took the guy fled. Originally, they thought he fled to to Jamaica. But I was uh, looking through the legal sections of the paper every once in a while, um, and uh, I saw his name in there. And he, his ex-girlfriend, who had a couple of kids by him, wanted to change the children's names in absentia because he wasn't responding. And she had this in this legal section. She named him the lawyer that had represented him at one time and then some other things. So I just notified my lieutenant. Uh, who's in charge of the detectives. And I said, hey, look, I found this along the way, if it helps or anything. So he looked into it, and about uh, a couple of months went by, and they arrested him in Florida, and he stood trial. That was the last trial I ever had to attend. I was getting ready to retire, and I had an open-ended subpoena. Got extradited. 
back to New York. Yeah, he got, yeah, he, he got, I mean, he, you know, Florida wasn't going to fight extradition anyway. And so he was extradited back and uh, they charged him with manslaughter and murder and all this. And so I went and I testified. It was May of 2006. So he had been on the run for about a good 15 years. They didn't find him. Oh. Yeah. And so they, I split because I had retired. The day they let me go, I was retired. And I had already purchased the house in South Carolina. So I, my daughter and I, that night, we left to come down here. And then I had talked to my friend up in New York who, you know, a little bit later, and he said, yeah, he, they found him guilty of first-degree manslaughter. He got, uh, I think he did 18 years or whatever. I think he's, I think he's still in jail now because they didn't, uh, I think they were going to max him out. But, uh, yeah, so uh, it was one of those things, you know. And the thing about being a cop is the thing I, I enjoyed the most was that when you go to work, it's something different all the time. So it's not mundane. It's not the same. When, when you, The hardest thing sometimes is getting out of the police station to go and start to do your patrol. Once you're out on patrol, you know, nobody, nobody bothers you. You're pretty much on your own. You do what you want. And, uh, and so everything, and, and it's, it's always different, you know, you different calls, different situations. You have to socially adapt. Good cops can socially adapt because you might go from a child being struck by a car at one point and you, you know, you have to help them to someone stabbed and you need to have to change along that way to approach each and every call different. And so, uh, but, uh, you know, I remember working one time on a Sunday morning. Um, and we had a, we had a, a country club up there that, uh, Knollwood country club and a couple of pro golfers came out of there way back in the day. And it sits in a com in part of the community where uh, a few major roadways crisscross near it. So um, it's tucked way in the back. And so, you know, you would go back there every once in a while just to drive around, let people know you were back up there. And so I, I was working a Sunday morning one day and uh, I got a call for an aided case. And they said, I go up to like the 18th uh, fairway and um, someone got struck by a golf ball. There's going to be some guys there and you'll see them off to the side. So I went up. The road. Wait, somebody got struck by a golf ball and they called. Yeah, them. for for you know for any time there's an aided case, the police go and then you would assess and then call the ambulance or when you got there, you go medically for the aided and then you hey, dispatch the ambulance or if you need a paramedic, they dispatch the paramedics or whatever. So I get there and there's probably about five or six guys, you know, uh, and you know, ranging from like say. 30 to 40 and then there was a couple of older guys and there was one older guy laying on which was the green it wasn't the fairway or anything like that and so directly adjacent to this green was the tee for another hole but they were up a little bit so the tee was raised up above maybe like two or three feet high on a little wall and that's where they teed off for whatever hole it was and then these guys were down below putting on the green and uh so i get up there and uh, the guy's laying there and he's probably about you know he's like close to 80 years old and he's just laying out and i was talking to him and i uh, you know hey are you you know how, how are you feeling type thing is where are you hurt and he's like look man i'm pretty i'm he goes these guys are actually fussing he goes i i feel pretty good he goes i just you know he goes i don't want to put 
anybody through all this stuff. He goes, I just, you know, you know, kind of like, just let me just get up and I just want to get through. Yeah. Like just let me, let me just get up and get through my day. I don't want to be embarrassed by an ambulance. I'm just gonna. And I, I said, well, okay. So I, so I said, just try not to move, but I said, let me just see where you got hit. And I look and sure enough, he was kind of bawling and there was a golf ball, the shape of a golf ball, like on the side of his head, that where it had hit him and impacted him. And it was, it was at that point started to raise up pretty, pretty good. It was getting like purplish, reddish, and you could actually see the outline of the ball a little bit. And you look down at the green and there was like a drop of blood where, you know, he got hit, he went down, this little drop of blood hit, and you know, so he, he, so the, his friends are there, the two older guys that were probably about his age are like, no, no, just listen, listen to the, listen to the officer, let him call the ambulance and you, you know, get, go get checked out, you know, go get checked out. And he's like, well, it goes, my wife is meeting me for lunch. And so this was say around eight, eight thirty in the morning. And they, they said, well, they knew her obviously. And they said, look, we'll, we'll call her. We'll just tell her that you, you know, that you, you got, had an accident and that you're going to go up to, uh, you know, have the doctors check you out. So reluctantly he was, okay, fine. I'll just, let me, I'll do that. If it's going to stop everybody basically from fussing, let me just do that. The, the younger guy who had hit him with the golf ball, he was like, you know, he was pretty much, he was pretty upset. And so I said to the other guy, I said, you know what? I, I was talking to the other people. I was like, you know what happened? He's like, Hey, he, they're on a, they're on the hole up top. And he said, he sliced the ball and it hit him. He goes, but that kid, he's like, it's like a second father to him. He said, he's known him since he was a child. He said, and that's why he's here. Basically he's here to, we're all golfing together. He goes, but he, he's like a son to him. He goes, so, I mean, there's no doubt that he's upset. And I, so I was talking to him. I'm like, look, I said, I, I mean, you know, he seems okay. I said, I wouldn't really worry too much. You know, he'll, I'm sure he'll be fine. The older dude's making jokes as they're putting him on the stretcher with the collar on his neck and, and, and all this other stuff. And, you know, the guys were like, yeah, well, you know, at least you don't have to put up with going to lunch with you. You're saved from going to lunch <laughs> yeah. with your wife type thing. And they're all yucking yeah. it up and laughing, you know. And I was, that was it, you know, figured out just another aided case. So I go on my way and not thinking anything of it. The following Thursday, so that was Sunday. On Thursday, I was working day shift. And we were pretty busy, and I had, I, th- I think I had gone in for whatever reason, but I think I was dropping off a report or dropping off something. And the phones were ringing, so I gave the guy who was on the desk a hand. I answered the phone, and I, you know, and it was uh, uh, Korean, like you know, guy with a Korean accent, and he's like, uh, and I figured once he started talking, I knew who he was. He was the assistant coroner for the county, and he was. I, you know, this guy, I've met him before. He's like one of the cool stories that this guy has to tell. And he's got a weird sense of humor too. But, uh, he was like, Hey, I'm looking for off. He couldn't pronounce my last name. And I said, yeah, that's me. He goes, Oh, okay. I found you. He goes, listen, I just have a couple of questions for you concerning a case you had. And I said, oh, okay, which one? He said, well, on Sunday morning, you had gone up to the country club where uh, a gentleman was hit by a golf ball. And I was like, wait a second. I said, he died. And he was like, oh, he's, he was gone by the, before, before noontime, he was done. And oh. I was like, are you kidding? Yeah. I was like, are you kidding me? He's like, yeah. He goes, 
uh, he said, uh, that's why I'm calling. He goes, I just wanted to get a little more information from you. And he, so I explained to him what happened, just like I'm explaining it to you. And he goes, well, how does, how did he get hit by the golf ball? And I said, look, I don't understand how he did either. I said, because where he was putting, the hole was behind where they were teeing off. So this guy had to slice that ball, like, like at an arc backwards. Like, so he must have sliced it. The ball came back and hit him. I said, because he wasn't in direct way and he wasn't to the right of him teeing off. I said, so the ball had to slice and come back. He goes, well, he said he was like either the most luckiest hit or the most unlucky person. He said, because that when he got hit by that golf ball, he goes, it drove his uh, chips of his skull into his brain. He said, by the time the doctors right. got to him in the hospital, he said they, he bled, he, yeah, he, he, uh, bled to death basically inside of his skull. He, the, the shards of, he said, we did the autopsy. He goes, we were taking bone out of his brain. He said, and he, you know, he was killed by the, by the he ball. He got nailed hard. Do you think that kid did it on purpose? No, that, so I talked to one of the other guys a while, not too much later. And they said he was beside himself. They said he was just un, unconsolable. He's like. I killed him. It's like he, they said it, to him, it was like killing his dad. He said that kid was just, un, you know, unconsolable. But you know, uh -oh. I mean, yeah, just I mean, so it just goes to show, like you, you go on some things on calls where you think they're just, yeah, you know, your average everyday call, and that guy got hit by a golf ball and joking around, and he didn't look that bad. Yeah, he had the knot on his head where he got hit, wasn't bleeding out, or he wasn't. I mean, it was getting swelled up pretty bad, pretty good by the time I got there. But there was I, in no way did I think that that he was he was going to pass God. from that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And when I got that call, I was completely shocked because when I found out it was Dr. Rowe from the from the coroner's office, I was like, I knew right then, you know, that he had died because he's asking me about it. And I was just shocked. But, uh, so you don't that's know. A, that's a. That's an act of God. I mean, that's pretty much your, it's your time, buddy. It is. Listen, I mean, it's, and it's, it's an accident. So, you know, I mean, sometimes you got control over what you do to yourself. I mean, I mean, we saw people, I, I mean, you know, suicides, different things like that, where you go and, you know, there are times where you go and a person, I don't know how to put this. So you, you leave a loved one for, for, they make an excuse. They don't want to go with you and your friends out and it's uncommon. And then you get back to the home and it's something just isn't right. The doors are locked. The everything's dark. And you, some people just have a sense about it and they call right away. Hey, listen, can you have a police officer come up here to my house? Why? What's going on? I, I think there's something wrong. And you get there, and sure enough, you go down to the garage, and you have to break the window open to get in. And by the time you clear enough smoke out, you find the person sitting behind the wheel of a car that's just committed suicide by carbon monoxide. You know what I mean? And so, you know, uh, I had uh, gotten a call from a guy one morning. He, he was hard to through the language barrier he was from some central american country i can't remember which one and i get to his apartment he lived in a downstairs of a home they were renting it to him 
And I get there, and he's all shaken up. He's trying to talk to me, and I did my best to communicate with him. And he, come on with me, come on with me. And you go into his bedroom, and there's a woman laying in his bed. And he had covered her up to above her breast with a blank, like a t- the, sh- the blanket that he was in the bed. And he's got no shirt on. He's got a pair of jeans on or whatever. And I'm looking at him. And I go over to, she's gone. I mean, there's, you, at certain points, you're supposed to attempt CPR and all that. Because police officers in New York, and in most states, they can't pronounce. Uh, obvious death is one thing. But if you get called to a situation where you don't know you're supposed to start BLS, but she was, you know, and, uh, so comes to find out by the time we got someone to come up and translate enough. So the thing was, he, he probably would have been able to tell me enough of what was going on, but he was just so shaken up. This guy was spooked so that he, he had, they had, he had worked at the hospital as a janitor, like a, you know, janitor or whatever they were up there. And she was uh, one of the office workers and they became friends and they would hang out every once in a while. So they were at his place. She went at lunchtime and met him. And during the course of their little tryst, uh, he said that she stopped moving and he thought she fell asleep. And he said when he was done, he looked at her and whatever. And he realized that she had, she had died and he was freaked out like he was freaked out and um it became an issue because her son was a new york city uh, cop and he wanted this big investigation into it he uh how do you guys know he, he didn't murder her and i'm like whoa 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 and it is the guy didn't murder her you know what i mean i mean well i don't know what you what kind i understand you know, your mom passed away i mean bro <laughs> This guy had nothing to do with that. So they had to wait for the autopsy to come out and come to find out she just had such bad, uh, like, arterial sclerosis and all that other stuff that she was just like a walking time bomb. But uh, heart attack. Yeah, just had in mid, mid, I don't, I got to keep it clean, but, you know, you can pretty much surmise what I'm saying. And she died, you know, and, uh, but, you know, people, they just, some weird stuff happens you know like uh we had a guy who used to come up from another community because we had all these motels and hotels and he i guess you know he was i was in my early 20s when i became a cop he's probably about the same age as me say you know every once in a while he was a voyeurist so every once in a while you'd catch him Sometimes he'd have his own ladder. Sometimes he'd make something to climb up. He'd peer through the windows and people would see him. And by the time you called, sometimes you'd catch him and sometimes you wouldn't catch him. You know what I mean? And uh, so um, I got a call one night at one of the motels. And, you know, you know a few years had gone by. People have an interaction with this guy. And so uh, I, I got a call at a motel at Sure enough, you know, uh, somebody's looking in the windows and I get there and he's back there. So I arrest him, you know, and I said, look, he, he was trespassed and he was all, and I said, you know, this is like becoming a serious issue, you know, and I, you know, he's trying to talk to this guy to get some help. Yes. Yes. I'm going to get help and all this other stuff. And, uh, his family, his mom was, she, she was a, a Greek woman and, you know, she was trying to help him as much as possible, you know, and yeah, she'd come step for a guy like that. What's that? 
I said, what's the next step for a guy like Yeah, that? so, well, that's the thing that started to worry people was whether or not, and he, I think he came close at times to doing that. It's just that he could never get over that step to get in. Mm-hmm. But but it got quiet for a little while. So, you know, he, no, he, nobody thought about this guy because he was out of sight, out of mind. You're always dealing with different people. Nobody really thinks of it. I was working uh, a midnight shift one night, and one of the neighboring departments was uh, on a pursuit. And so they called ahead. There's, there's a thing called a hotline. Every police department's hooked into this hotline. And it's like the red phone on the president's desk with Moscow. It's like so crime Right. Yeah, right. So the, it's it, you can't dial out on it. It's just a phone with no dials, no rotary, no buttons, nothing. It's just a phone. It's a red phone, and you pick it up and you can talk on it. You say, "Hey, whatever your station is, KKG five three seven," and then you say, "This is what we're doing. Can we get help?" And they would answer you because everybody could hear you. And so they called that in, and so I jumped into the pursuit, and there was about. I don't know, maybe like four or five cars, but I was a little bit ahead. So I had a chance to be in a position where I could just jump behind him. So we jumped on, jump behind him and we're on uh, Sawmill River Parkway, which will take you down into New York City to the West Side Drive. And as we're going down, I mean, this guy was in this like little beat up Toyota, but he was trucking. And this, these roads are, they're made for when they used to call them parkways. You know, in 1920, they, people used to take out their little, you know, Model Ts and go driving up 20 miles an hour. Well, now people drive them like they're, you know, they're like they're in a NASCAR. But he was he was going at some point. I at the time I had a uh, the, I had the Ford, and they weren't as fast in my opinion as the Chevy, but they would go. He was going about 110 miles an hour at one point, just booking. And so I was behind him the entire way. And then one of the sergeants from the another department come up next to me and he gets on the radio and he goes, you want to try boxing him in? And I said, yeah. So I pulled ahead and I got ahead of him and I slowed, 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 not quick, but just enough where the car on the left, me in the front, the car on the left, and someone behind him just slowed at the same time until he had nowhere to go. And he eventually just had to stop. So I'm in the car and and, um, I see him try to get out of his car, his little Toyota, and like three guys just jumped on him and took him to the ground. So I run out and I grab onto him. And so the one guy's got his left hand cuffed and he's going to cuff his right hand. And he's like, oh man, this fucking guy ain't got no hand. <laughs> and I'm like, and I look down and, and I look at him and he goes, man, did you ever handcuff the guy with one arm? And I said, no, but I said, I think he's got a belt on. And so he's like, yeah, he's got a belt on. Well, I said, well, just loop it in with the cuff. I said, where's he going to really go? You know what I mean? So cuff him to his belt through the loop on his jeans with his left hand. And he's got no right hand, so he's not going to be able to do anything. I turn him over and it's the voyeurist guy, right? Now, last time I saw him, I locked him up. I had to print him. He had two hands, you know? Now... Now he's just got the one hand and his right hand is gone. So uh, talking to him and talking to him and he doesn't want to, he don't want to talk to anybody. He's just, and so I talked to some of these other cops, you know, later on. I said, hey, did he ever tell you what happened to him? I said, because he had two hands, like not too, 
soon, you know, much prior then. Like, nah, man, he was like seriously uncooperative and we just booked him and got him up to the jail. So I was like, all right. So about a year or two go by and I was working in a midnight and it was just like a crazy kind of night. Like when things happen all at once, sometimes you get things that happen all at once at the same place. Full and, moon kind of night. Huh? Kind of like a full moon. Yeah. You know, like it's just, you, uh, you got a feeling once it starts. So I get, it's about one o'clock in the morning and I get a call. Girl was down there and she calls up. She's, she's all irate. And I get down there. I'm what's the matter? She's like, my boyfriend's in that room up there. Uh, I want, I, you know, I want to talk. He won't talk to me. That type of thing. I want it. And so the manager comes out and she, she's like, Hey, look, she's been here for like an hour screaming. She goes, I just want her out. So I looked at the girl. I said, look, there's nothing you could do. I mean, really, what are you going to do? You're going to, you're just going to make a, a fuss and you're going to make a, a big commotion out here. I said, she doesn't want you here. I said, I don't want to trespass you. I said, just whatever your issues are, just wait i mean and do it somewhere else but i said you got you have to go so she reluctantly she was with a couple of her friends they got into the car and they left and so the the motels used to get really busy and you you had to take every once in a while you had to take rides through the motels make sure that everything was okay and you know sometimes you'd run plates in there you get stolen cards you get warrants you do whatever but if you didn't go in there and show there was a presence you know that you know there was a lot of drugs a lot of prostitutes a lot of drunk people go there you know you get fights and all that so i left and about an hour go by and i get a call to go back there's a somebody on a ladder and i, I they they said he the person was on the ladder on the opposite side of the building facing there was a like a hill and a little road and then a hill and you couldn't see beyond that. You had to be in that road or in that alleyway to see behind this hotel. So I get there. And as I'm pulling in, I hear the fire alarm start going off outside. Like I pull up, the fire alarm goes off. People are fussing. Out from the alleyway, I see this Hispanic guy. He's booking. So I jumped the fence. I, I ripped the pants. I, I had a, like a, ripped my pants in my groin. And I, so I don't want, really want to be visual about where I cut myself and my pants are torn in half and I'm chasing after this guy and he's running and I finally get to him and I have no idea why he's running. All I know is that there was somebody behind there and there was a fire alarm and this guy's running. So I handcuffed him. And as I'm looking, I see another guy running this, I see this white guy start running and I take off and I run after him and I catch him and it's the one handed guy. <laughs> so I was like, holy shit. So I go in the back and sure enough, there's this wooden ladder up against the building. The, the people now are coming out because of the fire alarm. And I look up to where the girl earlier was complaining about her boyfriend. And I see him standing out there with another woman. And I'm thinking to myself, she, you know what she did was she came back. She wanted him out of the room. So she hit that fire alarm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. She hit the fire alarm to make him come out. She didn't know that so much commotion was going to happen. I got there. I don't know what the Hispanic guy was doing behind the building. I never could figure that out. And then, but the guy with one hand was up on the ladder looking through windows <laughs> at the same time. You know what I mean? So I was like, holy crap. So I finally got everything. You know, the fire department had to come down and reset the alarm. The girl had left, so I couldn't deal, nothing to deal with her. I don't remember what 
happened with the Hispanic guy, I don't, I, I just really can't remember at this point, but what he ran for, what, what, what it was, but the, so I take the voyeurist in and he's got the one hand. And so I'm finally getting to the booking procedures. So I got everything to that point and he's sitting there looking at me. He wasn't saying anything at all. And so I started to book him. And so when you print somebody with anomalies, missing fingers, uh, missing hand, you have to mark on the prints. You still have to submit the prints, but you just mark on their amputation. You have to put it. So you, you're sending in the sets, but you have to mark what's wrong with them so that they know. And the last time I printed them, he had two hands. Now I'm printing this guy with one hand. So I looked at, like, I'm printing him, and I said, hey, man, let me ask you a question. He's like, what? And I said, what happened to you? And he looks at me, and I said, last time... I, you know, you were here. I, you had two hands. I was the one that printed you. I said, then you had that car chase. And, uh, I said, did you do time for that? And he's like, well, they kept me in jail for six months. And I said, so what happened between those two times? He's like, I don't, I don't really want to talk about it. And I said, come on, man. He's like, I don't really, I don't really want to talk about it. Right. So I was like, fine. So like a little bit of time, I gave him a phone. He wanted to call his mom. He goes, I said, look, I don't know if you're going to be bailed here or if you're going to have to be uh, see a judge. I said, because you, you, you have so many of these charges. I said, it might jump it up to a felony. I'm not sure yet. I said, but if you want to call your mom, that's fine. So I let him call his mom. And like within 20 minutes, uh, the guy who at the front desk calls to me, he says, hey, there's a woman out here. She wants to talk to you. So I go out and, you know, she's probably, you know, she was a taller woman, blonde hair, glasses. She was probably like in her late forties and heavy Greek accent. You know, she was, she said, my son is here and, and she looked kind of like upset. And so I walked out, I didn't let her in at that point. I walked out to her and I was talking to her and I said, look, look, can I ask you a question? I said, has he gone for, you know, has he been, has he, has anybody had him go for help for this? I mean, because this is like a persistent problem. So someday What's going to happen is he's going to peek into the wrong room. And I said, someone is not going to let him walk away at that point. She's like, we've tried to deal with this for years. She said he started when he was like later on in high school. She said, you know, it's just it's just an issue. She said he's been to doctors. He's been we put him in a uh, hospital for a while. And I said, what happened to his hand? If you don't mind me asking, she said, well, she said uh, he was going to see a doctor. And they were trying to give him ways to like control his urges to, you know, he'd go up to these windows and he'd start masturbating and he'd do these other things. And they, in his mind, that was the point of evil was like, it wasn't his mind, it was his hand. So what do you do with the part that you don't want anymore? She said, took a half a stick of dynamite, she said, in the, to his backyard, she said, she was at work. She said, and he took himself outside. He lit this dynamite. She said he blew his hand off. And, uh, yeah, she said that they, she got a call at work, I guess, whatever. She said, my husband, she doesn't have, like, he didn't have a father at that point. I guess the guy left them. Who knows whatever happened. But she said, I got a call at work that he was at the hospital. I get there. She said, they she said he blew his hand off. She said, I don't know what to do at this point. I said, well, you know, uh, yeah, it sounds like you did a lot. That you did what you could, you know. What I mean, maybe you should just let the system kind of dictate at this point what kind of helped to get him. I mean, I really at that point, what do you do? And that was like the last time I saw him, and I don't know 
what happened with him. I don't know if he moved. I don't know if they he finally calmed down. I, I really don't know. He was about 30 years old, though. It wasn't like a young kid at that point. Because this had, had gone on for a long time, you know. And, uh, you know, so it's just some strange stuff that people, strange stuff that people do and everything. He took his own hand off with dynamite. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I knew he did something. I thought at first, he, I thought he cut it off. Like, I thought, I don't know. There was just That's something about it. And you were getting out. I actually thought yeah. he was say something like he got busted. Somebody they cut his hand off. Yeah, you know, like something. But, you know, it, it, he, that was, what was that movie where the hand comes alive? Was it the Evil Dead movie, the original one, where the hand comes alive? Yeah, <laughs> that its one. Own brain? It was. And then there was the one like with Devin Sawa it was like idle hands or whatever. Yeah, was. right. Yeah. Idle hands too. Yeah. And the old Peter Laurie one from the forties, the whatever the, Oh man, what the heck was the name of that one? Where his hand, he thinks his hand is playing the piano at night and stuff and, uh, and that stuff. Was, well, um, yeah, I mean, that's just what it is. I mean, that's the way some people, uh, some people, my neighbor, she she was schizophrenic and her son was almost as bad as her and uh we could hear him screaming and you know and stuff and so i went over to her one day and they called me and i said hey listen we're sending a car up there can you go over there and just back them up i only lived like two houses away from her and she knew me she was the one i think i told you was she was uh poisoning the squirrels and stuff and i i had a small small pool in my backyard. Remember, I think I told you that yeah. I find the squirrels dead all the time. I wasn't sure whether she was throwing them in there or not until I finally got one of the wildlife guys, uh, to come in and he, he did raccoons and squirrels and all that. And I had him come and he goes, you know, obviously it's been in the pool. You would never know, but he said, they're not going to fall out of those branches unless they're poisoned. He goes, squirrels, things like that, they don't fall out of trees. They just don't. He said, so the fact that they're falling above your pool, it's either she's throwing them in there or uh, she's poisoning them. They're getting up high into the tree and they're falling out. I, I, I can't tell you the amount of squirrels I found. So I had gotten this dog. He was a mill dog and he was born with a type of dwarfism where his front legs were bowed and shortened. They had like no joints in the front legs and they wanted to euthanize him. So I took him and I, you know, I took him from these people and I kept him. He lived 15 years. I used to take him out on police car. I put him in the back, <laughs> take him for rides and stuff. So we went to the house and she's getting all pissed off. And my friend was there and she looks at me and she's like, do you love your dog? Like she's screaming, do you love your dog? And I said, yeah, I love my dog. She said, well, if you don't stop, he'll be dead sooner. <laughs> So my friend looks at her and she's like, so you're going to, we call my dog Biff. She goes, so you're going to kill Biff? And she said, I don't give a shit what you call him. <laughs> so I was like, I got to keep my dog. You know, I, he didn't go out like anywhere, but uh, yeah. So I uh, got a call one day and I had left my house and I got a call and the, peop the kids across the street that lived across the street called and uh, I get there and she's laying face down on the ground, you know, and. He said, uh, I, his name was Hiro, and I said, what happened? He's like, I don't know, dude. She came out of the house screaming, just screaming, screaming, screaming. He said she just stiffened up, like full force vomit of blood just like came out of her mouth. 
and he said, and she just stiffened up and fell to the ground. He goes, oh, we didn't want to go over there. And I, he goes, is she, she's gone? And I said, yeah, she's, she's dead. And he's like, man, that's freaky stuff. And I said, I, I know, I know. But, uh, aneurysm? I, I don't know, man. You know, like I never even, I never even asked. I never even asked. I asked her son one day. I said, Hey, you know, if you don't mind me asking, he was like, I don't want to talk about it. And I was like, his name was Ray. They, people called him crazy Ray. And he was the, I think people that knew him said that the, his dad was the only one that kept him halfway cogent you know what i mean and and uh the mom was just terrible it was just absolutely terrible so uh but yeah i mean you go to people that are harmless some people are just harmless you know they some people have mental illness and but you can deal with them you can talk to them you can get them help they understand the limits of their illness and they you know they don't want to they don't want to like when they act a certain way they feel remorse for it and they're sorry and then you get other people that almost like that part of them comes out and they don't want to control it and that's the type that she was going around killing animals and threatening people and just you know you have to be really careful like especially since there was a lot of children in the neighborhood so i don't know if she would ever hurt a child but you never you never do know with somebody like that they started out with animals yeah Yep, yep. Once she was gone, dude, they, they never found another squirrel in the back. Not one squirrel. So, you know, it's not hard to deduce. I got one, I got a call for a robbery once and uh, at one of the motels. I got there pretty fast. And when I got there, the clerk and there were some, there were some of the maids were out. And they, they said that some people had gone in, they heard some gunshots, but they hadn't gone back in. I, I had gotten there by myself. And so I was... I was tactically trained anyway, so I knew a little bit more about entry and how to clear out. And I had to see if I had to get in there, especially if somebody was shot. It was just such wide open and there was doors everywhere. And it was, you know, I mean, it, the hair on the back of your neck goes up, you know, and, and I'm clearing out, clearing out, clearing out. And I get around. It was like a, an open desk area at that time. Uh, they didn't have anything like there was no glass or anything covering the front of the desk. It was just a wide open desk that led through a door into a back where there was like a storage room. And so I get around the corner and there was this guy laying face down on the ground and I could see like his brains ha had been blown out of his nose, like, and his ears, like you could just see the brain matter out. Well, not, not a lot of blood though. So I, I looked around, nobody was there. So I, I, I had, I had checked everything and there was nobody there. So I knew that they had left. I alerted everybody. Hey, listen, I, the scene as far as that's clear, but I don't, you know, responding officers got to start checking around the perimeter and everything and so i look in in the back and you know i can see the ejected casings for uh what looked like a 25 caliber and there was a safe that had been open and the back another back door had been open and so it was really quiet because i was the only one in there with this dead body and all of a sudden i heard this noise and man it sounded like ah, like it freaked me out a minute because it sounded like a like a gurgling burp noise like an animal kind of noise you know and i was like what the hell so i pop up and i'm looking around and i saw i found the second person she had been shot i think four or five times and she was underneath the the counter so she, when they shot her she fell underneath the counter 
and then one of the chairs fell over her. So she was completely blocked. She was very small too. She was, uh, she was from Thailand and she was tiny. So when she fell in there, she got covered and I couldn't see her. The only thing I could do is hear her. Um, and she wound up, she, I mean, if you say survived, but, uh, she was hit, she was hit multiple times and, uh, she lived for about three years, but she was in a coma for, for the three years. And, uh, and then she wound up passing away. The, the fellow who was shot actually worked there. His name was, his last name was Brown and he had gained a little bit of weight. And so I wasn't, I didn't know it was him at first. Plus, you know, the way he was shot, uh, eventually we found out, you know, that he, what happened was they, the place was robbed. He was there going to get some money to get his hair cut. So he's like going in there for an advance. Hey, can you give me 50 bucks? I'm going to get my hair cut. He wasn't even supposed to work that day. He wasn't even supposed to be there. And he had his wife's car. Yeah. So while he was in there talking to her, whether she got the money and they were talking, they, someone came in, one or more people came in and robbed them. And so instead of just letting, taking their stuff and going, they, you know, it's just, people are just animals, you know, human beings are animals. And so they made them apparently get down on the ground and he was probably pleading for his life, you know? And so you, the stipling showed that they put the gun against his head, but a 25, you know, is a slow, it's a bigger round, obviously not 22, but it's a slower round, you know, like a 22 is a fast round. So they shot him about three times in the back of the head, but the yeah. bullets, they didn't penetrate his skull. And so finally they stuck the gun in his ear and they shot and that just blew everything out and just killed him. And, uh, so, you know, those, that, as far as I know, is still an unsolved murder. But what happened was through the case, somehow through the casings and through some other things that, that were collected there. And I mean, we interviewed everybody, everybody, man, I spent hours and hours and hours and we everywhere. And we just, nobody saw anything. Nobody heard anything. Nobody knew anything. I mean, that's just the way it was. And about a year later, that gun was used to kill a diamond merchant in, uh, Manhattan. So, uh, you know, so it was responsible for at least another murder. And, um, uh, but I think the, in both situations, both perpetrators, if it was the same or if they were different, they were never found, you know what I mean? And, uh, it's just, a, it was just a shame. But, uh, when his wife found, uh, she was out looking for him and by this time hours had passed and she just thought to herself, I'm going to take a ride. Maybe he's there at the, at the hotel. And she said she saw her car. And we had already set up a, a mobile command post and everything like that to work out of because we had so many people we had to talk to. And so that was there. The police cars were all over the place. She saw her car parked there. And the first thing, I wasn't too far from her. And she was a young girl. And I hear her. So one of my chiefs got out and he stopped her. And she's, she just looked at him. She's like, he's, he's dead, isn't he? And he was like, can I talk to you in here? And. Man, I, I never heard a wail of despair. I told my kids many years later, I said, you know, you don't like, you know, I used to have to give death notices and talk to people. And, you know, you, I've never heard someone in just a, uh, a total despair the way that she she let out this just emotion. It was horrifying and it was just really, really sad.
like he can still hear it almost. Yeah, you know, my son, I remember when he was back, when he got back from Afghanistan, a couple, like, he had been home a few times, but I used to catch him sitting up by himself. And I would just come out and ask him if he was okay and just sit down with him for a little while. And is everything all right? And so he was, one time we were sitting there in my living room and he said to me, Dad, he goes, remember you told me about that robbery and when the wife found out it was her husband that was murdered and you said that you'd never heard that spill of emotion in that way. And I said, yeah, he goes, it's nothing you forget, huh? And I said, no, he goes, well, he goes, that he goes, we had a situation in Afghanistan where we were out with the Afghan uh, military and they got hit pretty heavy. And he said, and we had to get these, some of the wounded back to our evac them back to our medical unit for first aid and he goes and some were already dead and he goes there were guys that were just you know like destroyed he said so he goes i was trying to help with one guy and he goes and he kept talking but he was speaking whatever punjan whatever they speak there and he said that he couldn't understand him but the translators that worked with the americans were there and he said that he the guy was saying saying something saying something then all of a sudden they brought another stretcher in and when he said they put the stretcher down next to him, the the he the guy on the stretcher, like his head fell over sideways, and the guy looked at him and just he said he let out this sound, like just this like utter despair, like this yell and everything. He goes and uh, he said uh, he goes, you know, I mean, what do you do? And I said, I don't know. He said it wounds up that the translator told him that was his brother. When they brought him in, he kept asking, where's my brother? Where's my brother? Where's my brother? And that's when they brought the stretcher in and put it down. And the head falls sideways because the guy's dead. And he looks looking right into the face of his dead brother. And he said he just, I mean, and that's the stuff, you know, it, it, it doesn't like as a cop, what you can do is you, if you, if you take it as your job and I, and, and I try to tell people and some people that's kind of messed up and it's, like heartless shit, but you can't, it, you have to look at it as it's your job and you have to go from one call to another, just adapt socially to that call, go on and you can't take it home with you and you can't dwell on it. You know what I mean? You have to sure. try to find a, a way to, to just to live with it and not to think about it too much because really it's, uh, you see some pretty messed up stuff and, you know, and you can carry that with you a long time uh, if you don't, because there's a lot of, as a cop, you don't see some guys have helped give birth to children and that's the good they'll see. You know, sometimes you can help a child who's injured or you find children that are lost. Or, but for the most part, the reason why there are cops is because there's bad shit that goes on. And then those are the guys and the women that go and have to, you know, see that firsthand and deal with it firsthand. And it can some people don't, you know. Some people retire early because of it. And then some people can go home and go to sleep. I was like one of those people I could go home and go to sleep, you know, and never really gave it much more thought than I had to. Man, I'd do it all over again, though. I want to give a huge thanks to Chris DeMarais, one of my best buds in the entire world, for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you so much, Chris, for your years of service. And your stories are incredible and you're going to hear from Chris much more 
on this podcast because he is very much a part of Serial Spirits, the podcast. So guys, until next week, be aware and be safe. And I promise both Annie and I will be back next time. Later. Later.